First Samuel chapter 11. First Samuel 11. We took a break last week to uh, have the youth minister to us. It was a great night. Uh, but now as we jump back into 1 Samuel, it's good to be reminded of the fact that uh, the book of 1 Samuel was written with the emphasis of giving us lessons from the heart. You know, we've learned quite a few, some negative, some positive, of you know, the heart God wants us to have, the heart doesn't God want us to have. And you know, by this point in time, when we reach chapter 11, God has picked Israel's first king. But it doesn't look like the picking of a king uh, you know, that we might be used to even in our culture. We don't have kings, but rulers. Um, with all the pomp and circumstance, it didn't have any of that, uh, not what one would normally expect. Uh, the people go back home, as does Saul. There's no palace. There's not even a change of everyday life for Saul. He goes right back into the fields and taking care of his cattle. The only difference is in how some in the nation view him. We saw in the end of chapter 10 that God touched a group of men's hearts, and those soldiers escort Saul home. Uh, But another group despised God's choice for king, and they refused to show their support. And Saul could have lashed out, but instead he goes about with his life. And so when we get to chapter 11, Saul is king, but really in name only. He's respected in a sense, but not really united behind by the entire nation. And so what does God do to change that? Well, he throws a crisis their way. So chapter 11, 1 Samuel, verse 1. And then Nahash the Ammonite came up, and he encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said unto him, "Uh, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to you. And then came the messengers to Gabeah of Saul, and they told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices, and they wept. So here we see that the Ammonites have invaded the Transjordan. Um, the Ammonites regularly quarreled with Israel uh, because they had perpetuated this false narrative that Israel, when they came into the land under Moses, that they stole their land uh, under Moses' leadership, that they took the Ammonites' land. That was not true. God specifically told the nation of Israel, do not take any Ammonite land, and they did not. But because this false narrative was going on in the land of the Ammonites, they made numerous incursions into Israel for the purpose of conquering the Transjordan area. In fact, just 40 years prior to this chapter, the Ammonites took control of that, all that entire side of the Jordan, and they were actually making inroads across the river onto the west bank of the Jordan River. So if you remember in the book of Judges, God raised up Jephthah to win back the Transjordan land territory. Uh, but by the time we're here in Samuel, Jephthah's dead. And, and Israel's attention has been on who? The Ammonites? No, it's all on the Philistines, right? All their attention is focused to the other side. And so the Ammonite king decides it's a good time to press his claim again. And so he came up and encamped against, he laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is an Israeli stronghold city uh, about nine miles southeast. If you went uh, to Israel with us, remember Beth Shan, the big, huge Roman city that, we, that was excavated that we went down into and, and stuff? Um, it's about uh, nine miles southeast of Beth Shan on the other side of the Jordan River. And the idea is if the Ammonites can get 
Jabesh Gilead, uh, this stronghold city, to surrender, they'll control the entire eastern bank of the Jordan once again. Now, what's interesting about Jabesh Gilead is this was the only city that didn't answer the call to deal with the tribe of Benjamin way back in Judges. Remember when the whole situation happened with the Levite's concubine, he chopped her up into 12 pieces and sent them all out? Jabesh Gilead was the only city that didn't answer that call to fight against Benjamin. And remember when the tribe of Benjamin only had like 600 men left in it, where did they get the wives from? They got most of them from Jabesh Gilead. So, you know, this is a a city uh, that most Israelis don't exactly have a ton of loyalty to, you know? They weren't, they said, you didn't didn't have our back when we needed you, so they don't necessarily have their back. So their first response is to actually make a deal to serve the Ammonites. They don't actually think to first go and, and get help from their brethren, you know? And so they said, listen, you know, make a covenant with us, make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. We'll be your, your loyal vassals, you know? You'll, you'll, you'll be our king and we'll be your subjects. Now, that's interesting because Israeli individuals, Israeli tribes, let alone cities, weren't allowed to go rogue by making deals with other nations. They're all supposed to be one nation together. They don't allow them to make deals like this. And besides, they have a king now, right? Shouldn't he be making those decisions? But you see, that's the problem. Israel isn't united behind their king. They're, they're living like it's still the time of the judges where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Well, the Ammonite king hears their offer and he decides he's not going to make it easy for them. And then Nehash the Ammonite, verse 2, answered them and said, on this condition will I make this pact with you, this agreement. If you let me thrust, which means to gouge out, if you let me gouge out all of your right eyes so I can lay it for an approach upon all Israel. The word they reproach means to put someone in a disgraced state. Uh, Basically, the Ammonite king would be able to say, they'd rather me pluck out their right eyes than fight against me. That's how worried they are about me. And it would have a little bit more weight than just that. It also would have the weight of not just proof of the Ammonites' superiority, but also that their claim that Israel stole the land was a legitimate one. Now, one might think that people of Jabesh Gilead would refuse such an awful deal, but they don't refuse it outright. Look at what this says in verse 3. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, "Uh, give us seven days respite, which means withdraw from us, lift the siege for seven days that we may send messengers unto all the borders, all the coasts of Israel, and, and then, if there be no man to rescue us, then we'll come out to you and you can do the whole eyeball thing. Now, you might be wondering, why would Nahash agree to take an inferior military position, like not lay siege anymore? Why would he do that? Why would he give the opportunity for them to get aid from their brethren? Well, that's because the acknowledgement of Israel's so-called guilt in stealing their land was a prize far greater than defeating just one city, far greater, because it would legitimize his invasion, and it would legitimize any future invasions the Ammonite made, Ammonites made. And it would also galvanize his people as those who had been wronged, even though it was actually a lie. Now, the question, of course, is, they then came messengers to Kabia, but they sent them to all places. So why not send messengers straight to the king? Well, again, Israel's not looking at Saul like that yet. He, he might have stood head and shoulders above everyone else. They might have said, God save the king, but the after effects were, were too normal, you know? I mean, it, there, there weren't like, you know, you know, rainbows in the sky, and there weren't, you know, you know, you know, everything didn't seem to work out exactly like they thought. They thought, well, this is great. Okay, now I guess we're done, and they all go home. 
There's only a few that God touched their heart that they were really all behind Saul. They didn't feel any different. So they didn't act any different, which is an important lesson for us. We don't do what's right. We don't obey the Lord because it feels good or because it feels right. We do it because we love Him, right? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? We do it because we love Him, and we love Him because we trust that He first loved us. And so I would ask you tonight, you know, before we go deeper in here to Saul's response, you know, does that describe your Christianity, that you, you, you do things because you love Him? You know, you obey Him because you love Him. Or do you have more like Israel's attitude, you do it when you feel like it? Well, verse 4, then came the messengers to Gabeah of Saul. Not Saul in particular. Remember, the name of the city became Gabeah of Saul because he became the king. It became famous for that. Otherwise, it was just Gabeah. What's interesting is he's actually the last person to hear the news because he's not there when the messengers come. Then came the messengers to Gabeah of Saul, and they told the tidings in all the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, what ails the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Now, why were the people all weeping when they heard the news? Well, they thought the Ammonite problem had been dealt with. Some of them were probably old enough that they remembered the Ammonite uh, oppression that they'd experienced before Jephthah rescued them. You know? So in, in their minds, you know, things had gone back to how now they were before Samson and Jephthah had delivered them. Now they had enemies on two fronts again. It was horrible news. And, you know, they didn't look at it as, well, we'll just unite and go fight them because Israel had been so divided during the period of the judges. Because of how divided they were, if you, if you read the stories of the judges, you remember they'll say, and they, they raised the call to go fight, and then it says like two, two or three tribes came. You know, it, this was not something that they could just raise the war call and everybody would come, you know? It was hard to get everyone to rally against an enemy. Even the good judges would only get a response from a few tribes when war was necessary, so this was bad, bad, bad news, not just for Jabez Gilead, but for all of Israel and their future. Now, I love what verse 5 says, and behold, <laughs> Saul came after the herd out of the field, walking, but he's just walking behind his cattle. You know, I always chuckle when I, I read about this because it's not kind of how you, you, you would like picture like like the president or a king or, you know, somebody, you know, prime minister, you don't, wouldn't figure him, you know, you know, hey, we need it, we need a, we need a, we need a quote for the press, you know, and where is he? He's, well, he's out tending his flocks, man, you're gonna have to wait. So I imagine, you know, if I was Saul, when I got home, I would imagine I'd probably feel a little silly for hiding in this stuff after having to shovel your first pile of manure, going back to normal life. He must have thought the word for king just meant same. And yet, I have to smile when I see that Saul didn't kind of buck at the idea that a king still needed to do his daily work to provide for his family. I won't go into my personal feelings on civil service, but suffice it to say, it should be service. It should be service. It was great, you know, that those soldiers decided to escort Saul home, but that didn't put food on the table. And so Saul had to go out and he had to take care of his cattle just like everybody else. And you know, it's interesting, Samuel, later on when Saul kind of got too big for his britches, he told him in 1 Samuel 15, 17, 
He said, when you were little in your own eyes, was not, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? You know, being a good leader doesn't mean thinking small. Saul's going to think big in just a moment. But being a good leader does mean thinking yourself small. That's what it does mean, thinking yourself small, not thinking you're better than those you serve. And so what's funny is Saul comes in here, and the Hebrew literally means he came in and said, what? He didn't go like King James dresses it up all nice. What ails the people that they weep? Literally in the Hebrew, it means he came in and said, what? Why y'all crying? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Well, when Saul heard that, verse 6, it says, the spirit of the Lord of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen, and he hewed them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, whosoever comes not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. Start off by the initial, what happens after he hears the news. It says in verse 6, the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings. The phrase to come upon here, it means to have an overpowering force join a common force, with the result being a successful action because it's the will of the overpowering force. I love that. It's this idea that I'm just a common force. Saul was just a common force. But the Spirit of God joined with him. It was a partnership here. It wasn't that God just, you know, the Lord took over. Sometimes I will hear people say that and like, man, you know, just God just took over. God doesn't ever just take over. He partners with us. He doesn't remove us from the equation. He doesn't remove our will. He partners with us. And so, you know, Saul isn't much of a force. He's a common force, but God is an overpowering force, and he joins with Saul, and the result is going to be success. The Holy Spirit didn't take Saul over. He doesn't work like that. This is just like when Saul prophesied in chapter 10. You know, when Samuel told Saul, he said, listen, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you, and you're going to prophesy. So whatever God puts in your hand to do, go do it. You know, he didn't say, and when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, you're just going to be taken over. You ain't going to know what's going to happen. He said, no, 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 God's going to put some things in your heart to do. And when, when it's in your hand, do you see the opportunity to do it? Trust him and go do it. We partner with the Lord in this. It's an act of our will to allow the Holy Spirit to use through us, to be used through us. And so when the Holy Spirit said, Saul, I have, I have something planned with this, Saul yielded to what the Holy Spirit wanted to do, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to take the lead, the stronger force to take the lead. And, you know, when you and I partner with the Lord like that, awesome things happen. It says that Saul, his anger was kindled greatly. That was the work of the Holy Spirit here. His anger was kindled greatly. Now, in the Hebrew, it means his nose was aroused. And that is just a Hebrew idiom, a way of saying that you have a strong feeling of displeasure, you know? Saul was upset because a wrong had been done. And by the way, when that's what righteous anger is. Righteous anger isn't geared towards individuals or people or a people group. It is geared towards wrong that has been done. It is an anger at sin. It's an anger at unrighteousness. 
That's why the Bible says that our wrath doesn't bring about God's righteousness because our wrath is often directed where? Usually at somebody, right? You know, normally if I'm mad, I'm mad at somebody. It's very rare moments I can say that, you know, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and my anger was kindled. Normally it's Will's flesh got the best of him and he lost it. Some of you are awake. More of you are awake now. It's not that, you know, you would think, well, Saul would be, they're weeping, you know. It's not that Saul wasn't moved to compassion for his fellow Israelis. It's more that, so that he was able to be angry about the right thing. He was angry about the right thing. Well, what was the right thing? Well, the right thing is that there were two very wrong things going on here. Number one, the Ammonites had zero claim to that land because Israel didn't take any land from them in the first place. This was a lie, and God hates lies. You know, it is righteous for us to hate certain things. This is where where I think often in our culture we we confuse things. You know, if we hate something that's evil, often it's people you don't love. You know, where's the love? And it's like, I love you. I hate what you're doing right now. You know? There are numerous times that I'm sure my wife was not happy with me, didn't like me very much, but she still loved me. Doesn't mean she said, well, it was wonderful that you lost her temper with me and treated me like I was a slave. It's wonderful that you were unkind to me and stepped all over, you know, who I am. It's wonderful that you ignored me, you know. That's not love. But love still cares for that person, still wants the best for that person, still is for that person, even when you hate what they've done. And the Lord is very clear that there are certain things that he hates. This verse with these series of verses in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 have been in my mind for the last probably 12, 16 years because I don't ever want to find myself either A, doing these things or B, supporting anyone or anything or, you know, that, that, that acts these ways. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, God says, through the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. First off, an arrogant look, a proud look. God hates that. And understand, there are things here. There are seven things here. They are not listed in tears. He hates them all equally. A proud look. And then secondly, what we're dealing with here with the Ammonites, a lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. Thirdly, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates that. Fourthly, a heart that devises wicked plans. Fifthly, feet that are swift in running to do evil. Sixth, a false witness that speaks lies. So now this is not just a lying tongue, but you're actually going to go in front of others and you're going to testify that what you're saying is true when in actuality it's a lie. And then lastly, he that sows discord among brethren. Those seven things are all in the same section. God hates them all equally. They are all an abomination in his sight. And so when the anger of the Lord came upon Saul and his anger was kindled, his nose was aroused, he had great displeasure, it was because there was a great wrong, an abomination that was taking place. These guys were going to threaten innocent people over a lie? No. (laughs) 
Saul was angry about that. And the second thing that angered him is that weeping should not have been Israel's uh, first response. They should have already been planning on how they're going to rescue their countrymen. And so in verse 7, it says, how does he act on this anger? He took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers. Now, I don't think he went and grabbed somebody else's cattle. (laughs) I'm pretty sure these are his own cattle, which means this cost him something. This cost him something. So Saul knew Israel's history, right? The Levite had done this to his concubine to get the nation to finally act, right? To kind of grab their attention, to shock them into action. And yet, Saul doesn't do it exactly like the Levite had. Number one, the Levite's action cost him nothing. His concubine was already dead. Cost him nothing. Saul does this at the expense of two of his herd, a a yoke of oxen. You know, it's interesting, David, who is a wonderful leader, not flawless, (laughs) but he was a wonderful leader. He said he would not offer to the Lord that which cost him nothing. And you know, Saul shows his seriousness by paying the price first. I'm asking you to pay a price. I'm asking you to put your life on the line, but I'm the first one paying a price here. And that is what good leaders do. They do not crack the whip from behind and say mush. They lead from the front at first cost to themselves. Secondly, the difference, the Levite, when he sent the pieces, he didn't give any instructions. He just sent the pieces out. He just sent body parts. But Saul sent clear instructions. He says, whosoever does not come forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. He says, it's time to go to war. It's time to follow my lead. You know, he says, this isn't just my idea. This is God's idea confirmed by Samuel. So follow our lead as we follow the Lord. By the way, that's also what good leaders do. They say, the Lord is leading me this way. Come follow me. And then what did Paul say? You know, as, as, follow me as I follow Christ, right? That's what good leaders do. They don't say, just follow me. <laughs> they say, follow me as I follow Christ. And then lastly, the Levite, he didn't warn of the consequences of inaction, even though inaction would bring about God's judgment. Saul warned the people what would happen if they didn't follow the Lord. He says to him, listen, you know, if you don't do this, so shall it be done unto your oxen. Now, the question, of course, is, is Saul making a personal threat? Like, is he going to go to everybody's house that doesn't show up and, you know, kill their oxen? Seems a bit odd if that was the case. He's just a herdsman with a fancy title at the moment. I don't think that would have moved a lot of people. I do think, though, it's more likely that Saul's referring to what the Ammonites would do to them if they didn't follow the Lord's lead. Because if you don't listen to the Lord, he's he's just going to allow the Ammonites to have their way, just like he did in the period of Judges. And so you think you're going to be spared just because you're living over here? And notice what it says. How do the people respond? It says, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. What does it mean that the fear of the Lord came upon them? Well, the fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is to hate evil. That's what it says. So the best definition I've ever heard for the fear of the Lord is this. It is to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. It's the best definition I've ever heard of the fear of the Lord. And so... The idea here is Saul's angry because evil is being done. Wrong is being done. And so he calls them to have a similar reaction, 
to hate the evil that's being done and to rally behind my leadership as I'm sensing God is leading, us to, leading me to do something about it. And so it says, the fear of the Lord came upon them. You know, they loved what God loved and hated what God hated and hated that moment. The same work God's spirit did in Saul, he did in the rest of the nation. God's spirit was saying this is wrong as they got these parts and they were, oh, they heard the message. They realized this is wrong. We can't just sit back and not do something. We can't just sit back and let other tribes take care of it. God is summoning us. We need to partner with him. And praise the Lord, they did partner with him just like Saul did. For it says they came out with one consent. Literally, that means as if they were one person. No disagreements. They they all moved as one. Listen, if you've never led anything, you may not know this, but most of us have had to lead something at some point or another. One of the hardest things to do in life is to get a large group of people to move forward in unison. You know, I, I never dreamed how hard it would be just to keep track of 18 people in Israel. We lost one <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> it was quite the panicking moment, you know? And these were not children, these were adults. <laughs> it is not easy getting a group of people that all have their own thoughts, they have their own you know, uh, personalities, they have their own opinions about things, they have their own things, ways they think things can be fixed and to get them all moving in the same direction. It's not easy. But when a leader yields to God's spirit, God's spirit can overcome those challenges. And so verse eight, when he numbered the people in Bezek, Bezek is uh, uh, the area in the mountains just on the opposite side of the river from Jabesh Gilead. So it's nearby, just on the other side of the river in the mountains. So when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel, they were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. Now, why does he point out the difference between the the children of Israel and the men of Judah? Well, because the nation had already started to see themselves as north and south. They had already started to see themselves this way. It's only gonna be a few generations uh, that they're gonna split. You know, even though they didn't separate into two kingdoms until after Solomon died, we're not far away from that. So they had already begun to see it themselves as two different people groups. Now, Saul, he's got his work cut out for him, trying to unite this group is what that's telling us here. And yet, here they were. Now that they were united on this task at least, you know, they decide, all right, let's send messengers to Jabesh Gilead and let them know we're gonna come to their rescue. Verse nine. And so they sent unto the messengers that came, thus shall you say unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by that time that the sun be hot, so before noon, it says, you shall have help. And so the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. That's a bit of an understatement. Uh, It means they were elated. It means they held a celebration. They were partying, you know? And I'm sure that the Ammonites thought they were partying like it was 1999, the world's gonna end, you know? That's what they thought. They're having their big last celebration. But they were partying because our brother's gonna come to our, our aid. Verse 10. So, the leaders of Jabesh, after they party, they decide to do their part in the fight with a bit of subterfuge. It says, therefore, the men of Jabesh said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will come out unto you and you shall do with us all that seems good unto you. They said this to the Ammonite messengers. We will surrender and we'll make this deal with you, but wait till about tomorrow around noon. <laughs> now, I would think if I was the Ammonites, I'd go, something's fishy, you know? <laughs> Why noon? You know, but I, the Ammonites, what did they have to fear from them? Israel was never united in the past. Nothing. 
you know? And so they're going to have their guard down and be caught by surprise when the attack comes, not from Jabesh, but from somewhere else. Verse 11. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, divided them to three armies, three-pronged attack, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and they slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that the two of them were not left together. It's interesting here because, again, it would be a multi-prong attack from three directions, but when it says that, and so it was on the morrow that Saul did this, you have to remember something. When does an Israeli day start? 6 p.m., not 12 a.m. like our day. Their day starts at 6 p.m. So when it says on the morrow, it means at 6 p.m. he divided his armies at night. He divided his armies into three, three sections, and then he moved those troops over the river under the cover of darkness. They would not see the army coming. So it says, when did they attack? They attacked in the morning watch. The morning watch is those last four hours of the watch. That's from like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So right as the sun comes up, they're already there, and that's when they attack. And so they have all of the element of surprise. They're coming from three different directions, and the Bible tells us the Ammonites were beaten so badly they couldn't even form an organized retreat. It says that there was not uh, two of them left together. You know, when, when you're beaten, you can still try to save as many people if you keep your retreat organized. You keep your, hold your lines, and you retreat, you know, strategically. But none of that was going on here. Not even two people were organized together. Everybody just scattered everywhere. This was a huge victory for the nation of Israel. And that Saul was the one who led him to it had a dramatic effect upon the tribal leaders so much so that they turn on, after it's over, they turn on those who hadn't supported Saul. Look at verse 12. And the people said unto Samuel, who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. That's nice. They help you fight. Now you're ready to kill them. You know, it's interesting here. Saul might be the king, but the people were still so used to looking to who? Samuel. I mean, he was still the guy they looked to for leadership, Right? I bring this up because I think it's important to recognize that Saul wasn't initially part of this conversation. He's not part of this conversation initially. The tribal leaders, they go as one to Samuel and they say, give us the names of those that didn't give gifts to Saul, that despised him. We want, we want to put an end to this disunity. This was an amazing thing that just happened. We were unified and look at what God did. He is the man to lead us. Give us those names, Samuel, because they're, all going, they're going to the gallows today. We're not, we are putting an end to this nonsense today. Now, 1 Samuel 10, 27 tells us why they despised Saul. They said, how shall this man save us? They did not think Saul was qualified to lead in war. That's one of the reasons they wanted a king, someone who would be qualified to rescue us from our enemies. And when they saw this guy, they're like, well, he's tall, he's head and shoulders above everybody else, but he's a farmer. You know, he's a, he's a herdsman. You know, how is he going to lead us in war? And so they, they despised him. They looked down on him. They thought, this is nonsense. Why did God give us him? Well, Saul had probably changed that perspective a little bit by now, hadn't he? He had proved he could mobilize the nation, right? He had proved that he could lead them to victory in battle, Right? Well, 
These guys don't want to give them a second chance. They said, we want to put him to death. Now, disloyalty to the king or disunity, whatever you want to call it here, was not a capital crime under God's law. But the view back then was, if you let a divisive person live, they will cause greater harm later on. You know, uh, Bev was asking me, you ladies are studying Esther, and she's asking me, she's like, why? You know, what happened when the, you know, what do you think about, you know, the fact that all of Haman's family was killed too? You know, or, or I don't know, something she asked. Something, basically, there was consequences to more than just Haman. And, and I said, babe, I'm not saying it's right, but this is how it was back then. You didn't, you didn't leave anybody alive who could take revenge. The concept in the Middle East, even today amongst certain groups, is still that if you kill my family member, I am duty-bound. I am duty-bound to, to protect my family's honor by killing you. And so if you, you know, showed mercy to someone who could part be a future avenger for what you've done to kill off your rival, you're asking, you're asking to fight another war later on. You're asking to ha always be watching your back. It's just how it was back then. And so there was no mercy. Frequently when there was, you know, a, a, a squabble after like a king died or, a, you know, a governor died or something like that or some type of figure that where it was passed on to their sons, it was basically the survival of the fittest. And whoever survived, they killed every other remaining relative. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's how it was. So in their mind, they're thinking, we got to kill these guys because we don't ever want this to happen again. They'll cause greater harm later on if we don't fix this, this divisiveness and this disunity now. But when Saul learns about their demand to Samuel, he does step in. Look at verse 13. And Saul said, there shall not a man be, to put, be put to death this day, for today the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. Now, Saul's just not being a wimp here. He's not just, you know, not, doesn't want to make the hard decisions that a leader needs to make. That's not his point. He goes, no one's going to be put to death this day. He knows that there will be future times where he's going to have to administer justice as a ruler. He understands that. But today, he says, it's a day of salvation, not a day of justice. God has just rescued our brothers from an awful mutilation. He has preserved us in battle. This is a day of grace, guys. This is a day of God's mercy. This is a day of God's favor. This is not a day of justice. And you know, that's also what a good leader does. See, the tribal leaders wanted justice, but Saul convinced them of a better way. I love what the great football coach Tom Landry said. He said, leadership is getting someone to do what they don't want to do to achieve what they want to achieve. That's a great quote. It's a great quote. Because what did the tribal leaders want to achieve? They wanted a nation unified behind Saul. They wanted a nation that wasn't divided anymore. They wanted a nation that was whole to get rid of the division. But killing those who despised Saul wasn't the only way to achieve that, wasn't the best way to achieve that. And so Samuel, in verse 14, offers an alternative solution. Then said Samuel to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and let's renew the kingdom there. Now, what's special about Gilgal? Gilgal was the place where Israel made their first camp when they crossed the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, to come conquer it under Joshua. It's the first place that Joshua had to lead the people, you know? 
This was, became kind of their camp from then on. When they fought, and they, they, they fought Jericho. When they were done, they came back to Gilgal. When they went further in and they, they fought uh, Bethel and Ai, they came back to Gilgal. After they conquered all of southern Israel, they came back to Gilgal. So this was kind of their, that place where it all started, where, where new leadership took over and where they made a fresh start with the Lord. And so how fitting that Samuel's saying, how about we give everyone opportunity for a fresh start with Saul? The word there, renew, means to reaffirm. Let's give everyone a do-over, okay? If these men change their mind, then guess what? We've achieved the national unity you're looking for without killing anybody. If they don't, well, then we'll deal with that then. But let's give an opportunity for a do-over. And let's see how it goes. Verse 15, how does it go? And all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they offered, they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and how many men of Israel? All the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. That means it included the men who first rejected Saul. They were on his side now. They were cool with this now. They were truly unified, and nobody had to be put to the sword. Wasn't this a preferable ending to dividing the country between pro-Saul elements and anti-Saul elements? You see, Pastor Will, you can't guarantee that they would have done you know, the right thing. No, no one could know if it would result in unity. But I can tell you this, there'd have been no chance if those men were executed. Mercy at least gave it a shot. And the Bible tells me, (laughs) tells you, that mercy triumphs over justice. That's what it tells us. You know, I remember when I went off to school and I knew God had called me to be a pastor, but I knew some things had to change because I would definitely not be the first person that people would come to for grace. And the first person to tell you that would have been my fiance. I remember my first semester, I I took a class in the book of Ephesians. And of course, Ephesians is a great book of all that God's done for us in his grace, right? It was in the book of John, which shows us Jesus, you know, in one of the greatest ways. And as I began to see more and more of what God had done for me, how gracious and how merciful he'd been to me, it began to change me on the inside. I remembered, I called up Bev back then with my phone card. And on the pay phone, you know, my Sprint phone card. And uh, she was really going through it. And, uh, and she was, you know, pouring her heart out to me and, and I just began to tell her how much God loved her and how she was going to make it, you know, and God was going to, she was going to get back up again and the Lord was going to strengthen her and, you know, he, 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 he had forgiven her, you know, she brought it to him and it was, he was done and he was going to be merciful and he was going to, he was going to help her overcome. I'm right. She said, well, I'm worried you're in a cult. Because <laughs> that wasn't the will she knew. Good leaders, if you're going to be a good leader, your desire has to be to show grace first, not administer justice. 
to look for a better way. You know, there are times when you have to say, well, listen, here's, here's the deal. But that's the last resort, not the first resort. The heart of leader is one who looks to show grace first, not justice. You want to know why? Because it's easy to show justice. It's easy, especially to pummel your enemies when you're the one with the authority. Any thug can do that. But a leader has a heart that wants even to lead his enemies to be at peace with him. Because isn't that what the Lord did with us? He sought to make his enemies, us, to be at peace with him. And the Bible says that when we fear the Lord and we love the Lord, he does the same for us. He makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. I want to read to you a quote from J. Oswald Sanders that when I was at school, it hit me hard, and I've, I've returned to it many times. He says this, a leader is not so strong that he cannot show sympathy for the weakness of his fellows. And then he quotes Romans 15.1, we who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak. The person who is impatient with weakness will be defective in his leadership. The evidence of our strength lies not in the distance that separates us from other runners, but in our closure with them, our slower pace for their sakes, our helping them pick it up so they can cross the finish line. The heart of a leader does not look at those who lag behind, those who are trying to drag others behind even at times, as an obstacle to progress. Anyone can set the pace and cut the dead weight holding them back. That takes such little effort. But good leaders go find the fallen Peter so as to restore him. Good leaders love even Judas to the very end. And you know, when we look at Peter and Judas, there's very little that actually separates them. Both of them betrayed the Lord horribly. And yet because the Lord loved both of them to the very end, well, we see one does finish his race. Jesus, he would have been justified to just cut them both off. I mean, they deserved it. But he loved them to the end. And that one who finished his race, he didn't just finish, but he, I would say he finished well. If you desire to be a leader or feel called to be a leader, then you need to recognize that you're saddling up to lead people. <laughs> people, sinners, people who are not easily led. So you must be prepared to win them over by being an example and by proving to them that you care. You see, the good leader, like Saul and Samuel here, has a heart that won't be satisfied until you've won over even those who oppose you. That's what good leaders do. Now, as we close here, we have a king, right? We do, right? Jesus, he's our king. And does Jesus have any shortcomings? He has zero shortcomings. Nothing he does can be critiqued. There's no reason to despise him. And you know, here's the truth. We've got plenty of crises situations around us. 
So as he calls us to occupy until he returns to claim his kingdom, here's the question. Will we unite behind him? Or will we squabble with one another while he tarries? He is a good leader. And he and his leadership says this to us in Colossians chapter 3. He says, put off the old man, put on the new man. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, I mean, that's a pretty tall list. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the bond of maturity. That's what mature believers who are following their king, their leader, do. Let's all stand. Lord, many of us are here tonight, we, we do have people we lead. We lead families. We, so we have kids. You know, we have, some of us have employees. You know, some of us lead organizations. Some of us are leaders here in the church. And Lord, I look at Saul here and there's so much to be like, proud of. There's so much to look and go, that's, that's how I want to be. Saul, you're, you're blazing the right path. It's Samuel, you're doing the right thing. I want to be like that. So, Lord, as you have shown us what the heart of a leader looks like tonight, and we see it all reflected in your heart because we know that's how you've dealt with us, would you lead us to a place of being good leaders? Lord, that we would be faithful with what you've entrusted us. Lord, if there's areas where we've not been gracious, then we ask you to forgive us. Help us to be the right example. Help us to show others that we care. And Lord, fill us with your spirit so we can do all these things. Thank you for being an awesome captain. Thank you for going before us and leading the way, laying your life down for us. Thank you for being our example. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.